Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them to Mark 9. Uh, just as the video told you, if you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. We'd love for you to turn to page 896 uh, so you can follow along with us. Understand that what we're talking about this morning is the most important thing we're talking about is the Word of God, and our opinion is ultimately irrelevant. Uh, but His Word is timeless and eternal. I hope, I hope uh, you know the significance of what we're just saying, right? The Bible says in the book of Genesis that when God created Adam, He formed him out of the dust, and then He breathed His breath into him, breathed His life into Adam. So when that, that same breath of God has been put into all our lungs, every time you inhale, every time you exhale, that is a gift from God keeping you alive. And, and what better way? What better way to, to steward that gift and to use that breath to sing praises to him? And so thank you uh, for taking part in that. That's free, by the way. It's not even a sermon. That's just a bonus this morning, all right? Uh, but if you got your Bibles, please get them to Mark 9. I want to second what Brandon said and just wish a happy Veterans Day. Happy um, Veterans Day weekend to all you have served. You have our undying gratitude uh, for the chance that, that we have to gather this morning freely without any kind of fear, persecution, or worry. We can just come and just be a part of this. And we know uh, that most awesome gifts come on the, the cost and sacrifice of many. And so uh, please, please know how appreciative we are of that. And I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started on this message in Mark 9. Father, we are thankful. God, we're so thankful for the chance that we have to be here, uh, to, to gather uh, as your people, to open your word, uh, to, use, to use the breath in our lungs, to, to sing praises to you. And then now, God, we hope to hear from you. I pray that you would push me out of, out of the way. You'd push distractions of life out of the way, that you, God, would just take over this time, that your spirit would move unhindered through this place, and that you get the glory from everything that's about to happen. Come in power, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a 25-year-old pastor sitting in my office just outside of Greencastle, Indiana, and I was excited because a church member had come to me and wanted to ask me a question about God and the Bible and things like this. And as a younger pastor, not many people sought me out. And so I was, I was excited. I was like, man, I get, a, I get the chance to help somebody. I get the chance to talk about things I love talking about. And so I, she sat down. I said, all right, what, what, can I, what can I help you with today? And the lady said, well, I'm just confused. I'm confused by God, and I'm not sure if I've been lied to or misled, but I'm just, I'm just confused. And I was like, all right, well, 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 just let's walk through this. What do you mean? And she said, well, I, I was watching uh, some, some preachers on TV, and they told me that you can't outgive God. And we as a family have had all kinds of financial problems. And so in, in recent weeks, we've started giving to your church, and we've started sending money to some of the preachers on TV. And I said, okay. And she said, and we're still poor. So what's the problem? And now, there are things about that conversation that I'm thankful for. I got the chance as a pastor to warn her about those swindlers on TV, right? That if you ever hear someone say, if you send me money, you'll get rich, send them a deposit slip, because if they believe that, they'll send you money, right? But then I got to teach her the heart behind giving to the Lord, that, that it's a sacrificial act of worship and love, that, that yes, uh, I do believe, and I do believe the Bible teaches that God blesses us and provides for our needs, but that is not a promise of riches, and that should never, ever, ever be our motivation for giving. Because as I told her, if I give you $5 expecting that you're going to give me $10 back, that's not a gift. That's not giving at all. That's an investment with selfish motivations. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that conversation, that moment, but as I look back on it, I also feel deep regret. And I feel regret because of what was going on inside of me. Because the whole time I was talking with her, I never one time empathized with her. I never 
put myself in her shoes. I never sort of identified with her struggle. I, 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 hope, I hope and believe to this day that I, that I hopefully didn't speak from a position of superiority. But what I did believe was this. Well, I'll never struggle with this. Right? I'll never have this view of this, right? Because at age 25, it's really easy to see where everyone else is wrong and really hard to see where you're wrong. Now that, I think, gets easier as you age, but still not easier. The truth this morning is this. I've never given God money expecting more money to come back. Never. But what I have done is I've funneled my life and my faith journey and even my following of Jesus through the prism of self. I've asked, what in the world do I get out of this? What, what, what can I gain from this? And you know what? That strategy fails every single time. Every single time. The worst part about our culture's message today, and which, by the way, I can just sum up for you really fast, our culture's message is that self is the only acceptable God, that you are the answer to all your problems, that you need to find your truth and speak your truth and be your truth, all of that. The worst part about that is just how plainly wrong and ineffective it is. It has never worked. It's never resulted in any kind of happiness or fulfillment. If you peeled back all of my worst moments as a parent, you know what you'd find? If you peeled them back to the core, you would find that I was more upset over how hard my kids were making my life than I was concerned about their personal development. If you cut to the root of every health problem I've ever had, it's because I internalize everything of what people think of me or the job I'm doing. I have pursued spiritual disciplines like prayer and solitude and Sabbath and fasting. And the reason why is because I thought they would give me more love and joy and peace and patience and stillness and rest. And when those things didn't immediately come, I got frustrated. I have given God $5 worth of pursuit expecting $10 of blessings to come back. And the greatest problem in my life is that I keep getting in my own way. Now, we're headed into a very unique season as a church, and I would call it very critical, where there's this diverse combination of things all coming towards us that make up what I believe is a divine recipe, right? There, that there will be, there's going to be changes to our building spaces. There's going to be changes to our service schedule and structure and style. There's going to be changes to our name. We're going to take concrete steps of obedience towards what God is calling us to do to be a planting, sending church. And all of it, right, not by plan, not by strategy, just by the way it happened, all of it will line up directly with you going through the holiday season in which your opinion and your schedules are going to collide constantly with family expectations and what others are think are best for you. And so these coming weeks that we're staring down the barrel of, they could do wonders for our church. We could come through it way more unified. We could come through it more on mission. We could come through it a community of people that's been transformed and prepped for the glory of God, or it could spell disaster for us. And honestly, I don't know the future. I don't know which way it's going to go, but I know what will decide it. What it comes down to is this, whether or not we funnel everything through the prism of self. In Mark 9, we're going to cover three verses today. These three verses will do very little to advance the narrative of Mark. But what they will do is they will give us a snapshot of where the main characters are at this point in the story. And what we're going to see this morning, as remarkable as this may sound, what we're going to see is that despite being with Jesus all this time, more than two and a half years at this point, the disciples are still missing out on everything that matters. And the reason why is because they have funneled every experience they've had through the prism of self. And so I'm going to invite Chris Mathis up to read today's passage for us. He's going to be reading uh, for us out of Mark 9, verses 30 through 32. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word? Good morning. 
Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. But he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this, this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Thanks, Chris. You guys have a seat. Now keep your Bibles open there. Let's break down really quick, uh, just kind of unpack uh, what Chris just read for if we're getting to apply. And, and like I said, uh, the story, like the narrative of Mark isn't, isn't advanced a whole lot here. But, but everything that has happened up to this point influences what we just read in those three verses. And so in verse 30, Mark tells us they left that place. That place was Caesarea Philippi. That's where they've been since the middle of chapter 8. Uh, that was the backdrop to some of Jesus' greatest teachings that were against the idea of him as an earthly king. And so they're leaving there, and they're on their way to Capernaum. Uh, and what that means for you, all you need to know, just geographically, is they are starting uh, their, the first leg of their final journey south towards Jerusalem. And so for the rest of the book of Mark, Jesus is heading in one direction. He's heading towards Jerusalem, and he's going there to die. And Jesus does something here in verse 30 that he hasn't done a lot in Mark. He's tried it a couple times and failed, right? But he hasn't done a lot in Mark. He does it successfully here, and he's going to do it more as the book progresses. And that is that he gets away, secretly gets away with just him and his disciples. And he wants time to just invest in them. And he begins to teach them what it is that he wanted them to know in this, in this really intimate setting. Look at verse 31 of chapter 9. It says, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he's killed, he will rise three days later. Now, if you've been with us for the study of Mark, does that sound familiar? I want you to look back, turn back one page, look back one exact chapter from chapter 9, verse 31 to chapter 8, verse 31. Look, read what chapter 8, verse 31 says. Then he began to teach them. And again, this was just Jesus' disciples at the time. He began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. Same exact teaching. Now, do you remember how it went the first time? Not well. Right? Verse 32, chapter 8, Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Matthew tells us his gospel. He actually says, this will never happen to you, Lord. What you just told us is not going to happen. Not the best move by Peter. Peter. Jesus turns and he rebukes Peter in front of all the rest of the disciples. says, get behind me, Satan, because you have in mind only human concerns and not God's concerns. This is not the disciples' finest moment. But what this did begin was, was it started a theme for Jesus. Where it, he started in chapter 8, verse 31, and he's been teaching the same thing over and over and over again. Later in chapter 8, in verse 34 and 35, he calls a crowd over and he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, here's how you follow after me. Number one, you deny yourself. Number two, you take up your cross, which is an instrument of death and suffering. And number three, you follow me wherever I lead you. And then he says, whoever loses their life, whoever gives up their life for me or the gospel will actually save it. Then we get to chapter 9, and there, he and Peter, James, and John are up in the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And, and the disciples are like, let's, let's build shelters. Let's stay here. Let's not move. And he's like, no, I have no interest in staying here. There, there's work to do in the valley. Where is he going? He's going to Jerusalem to die. Then on their way down, they're asking about Elijah. Is Elijah going to come and restore all things? And he says in chapter 9, verse 12, okay, you want to talk about that? Then tell me, why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things? Say, guys, I'm going to die again and again. And so certainly, right, when we get to chapter 9, verse 30, 
and 31. He's teaching them. Certainly they've got it now, right? He's been hammering this point home again and again and again. They, so surely they know what's coming. They also understand the necessity of it. They've got it, right? Verse 32. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. I don't know if you know how big a deal that verse is. Because that verse reveals to us two things about Jesus' disciples, and neither one of them are good. The first thing it reveals is this, is that they still don't understand Jesus' mission. They still don't understand why he came. They still don't understand what he's about. And I want you to listen to how Matthew records this moment for us in his gospel. It's the same exact conversation. Matthew 17, it says, Jesus told them the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And listen to this detail. Matthew says, they were deeply, this is disciples, they were deeply distressed. Deeply distressed. That Greek phrase literally means exceedingly sorrowful. What were they so upset about? Well, the most obvious answer is still the most likely one. That nothing has changed since the first time Jesus taught this. Right? They, they simply don't want this to be true because of what it means to them and their future and everything they thought Jesus was going to give them. John Grasmick in his uh, commentary on Mark said, wrote this. He said, the disciples failed to understand what Jesus meant and were afraid to inquire further. Perhaps this was because they remembered Jesus' rebuke of Peter or, and I love that he writes this, more likely which I agree with, more likely, because his words had a devastating effect on their hopes for a reigning Messiah. They didn't understand it. They didn't grasp it. They didn't want to understand it. They didn't want to believe it. They didn't want it to be true. And so they are staying in ignorance. And the reason they didn't want it to be true is because how it affected them. The second thing that this verse reveals to us about disciples is that they still don't even know Jesus. How does verse 32 end? It says they were afraid to ask him. Now, you might be thinking, well, yeah, last time it didn't go well, right? Jesus called them Satan. But what didn't they do last time? You know what they never did last time? They never asked a question. Not once. Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked Jesus. He made a statement, this will never happen to you. He took the role of teacher and assigned Jesus the role of student. He took the role of corrector and assigned Jesus as the one needing to be corrected. He reversed their positions, which you should never do with the Son of God. But to ask a question, right, that's to keep the roles in their proper place. To ask a question is a sign of humility and a genuine desire to want to know more. To ask a question is actually a sign of faith that Jesus will know the answer. Jesus Christ is exactly the type of rabbi and the type of God who loves questions, is gracious to them, and is willing to help and willing to answer. They aren't, and and what's worse here in, in Mark 9, they're not afraid of looking stupid in front of other people. There's nobody else there. They're just afraid of asking Jesus a question. And to be afraid to ask Jesus a question is to not know who he is. And all of that should scream its own bigger question which is how in the world is this even possible? I mean, think about it. These men have left everything, career, families, everything to to follow Jesus. They have at this point spent two and a half years traveling with him, being with him. They've seen all the miracles he's performed. They've heard all his teachings. They have ate with him. They've spent downtime with him. They've spent intense times with him. How after all that time, 
How can they still not understand what he's about? How after all that time can they still not know his heart and character? Well, the answer is actually simpler than you think. It's that for the last two and a half years, disciples have funneled everything through the prism of self. That's the fourth time I've used that phrase. So what, is it, what do I mean when I say that? To funnel everything through the prism of self is to take every experience you have, to take everything that happens to you and funnel it all and interpret it all through one prism. How does this affect me? And before we shake our heads as disciples for living this way, we are all guilty of this. We're all inflicted with this. Romans 5, Paul's writing to the church of Rome, he says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. See, when the Bible is clear that when sin entered the world, not only was all of creation, like the outside world, stained by sin, but all of humanity was cursed with a sinful nature. This is a nature that you and I, we inherit, just like we inherit other traits, right? We have a sinful nature at our core. We are sinners. And the Bible says that because of that, our minds are actually depraved and our hearts are deceitful. This is why we are in such desperate need of Jesus Christ to save us. And once, once we understand who we are, once we understand how broken and messed up we are, we get a glimpse of just how much God loves us in the gospel, my favorite quote from Tim Keller is this. He says, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and more flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, right? That we're more messed up than we ever thought possible, and yet at the same time, here's the reality. We are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Praise God that he loves and accepts and saves and redeems sinners who turn to him in faith, or else none of us would have a shred of hope. But you see, this sinful nature that I carry around, it means that everything I experience, if I put up zero resistance, I will funnel it all through the prism of self. Don't believe me? Tell me then, why is the music or TV always too loud or too quiet until you have the remote control? Why is the room always too hot or too cold until you have the thermostat? Why is the car in front of you always driving too slow and the car behind you driving too fast and you are the only one on the entire road who's driving the ideal speed, you gift of God to humanity? Right? Now take that mindset and use it to filter everything the disciples saw. Every passing miracle was a confirmation that they had hitched their wagon to the right horse. This is the Messiah, and he's taken us places. Every crowd that gathered only deepened their belief that he was the earthly king, and he was the ticket to the good life. So that when he begins to teach that it's the opposite, their first reaction is to reject it fully. This doesn't match the prism I've looked at everything through. This doesn't get through my filter. So no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Why? Because they were protecting Jesus? No, because what he was saying wasn't good for them. Then we get to chapter 9. Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain, and they see, they see Jesus transfigured, and Moses and Elijah come up. And what does, think of the language again. What did Peter say? It's good to be here. It's good, Lord, that we see your glory. No, it's good for us to be here. It's good for me to be here. Let's build shelters and stay. Forget the other nine. Forget all the needy people down below. Then they come down the mountain, the passage that Brandon and Travis spent the last two weeks teaching us, right? They can't deliver the boy from the demons. And the question after when they get alone with Jesus is not, Lord, would you make us more effective at helping needy people in the future? 
God, how can we have a heart for hurting families? How can we, how could we be better for that father? No, it was, why couldn't who? Why couldn't we do it? Do you, do you see the filter through which everything is viewed? The whole time Jesus has been offering himself, the whole time he's been establishing an eternal kingdom that will change everything forever, far outshining whatever their pathetic little dreams are, this whole time he's been on a mission to reconcile people back to God, and they've missed all of it. They've actually missed him because they've been so blinded by the prism of self, and they were not alone. Jesus makes an amazing claim in the Gospel of John that we need to take heed of. In John 5, he's talking with some religious leaders of Israel who are confronting him about a miracle that he performed. And he makes what I think is this combination, the boldest and most tragic claim in all of the Bible. John 5, here's what he tells them. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Let me ask you a question. What's one of the best things that you can do to get to know God? You can study God's word. This is God revealing himself to us. You can, to borrow Jesus' language, pour over the scriptures. But that alone does not guarantee success. Did you catch the motivation that Jesus diagnosed there? Why did they study the scriptures? Because, here's the language, you think that you have eternal life in them. They did it to get a reward. They did it to see themselves as set apart and better than all the others who weren't studying the scriptures. And, they, and, so, and so, they missed the forest through the trees with that motivation. I, I want you to know, everything in this book points to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points to his coming. Everything in the gospel is about him. Everything in the New Testament is about living for him. Everything at the end is about his return. It all points to Jesus. To study the scriptures and miss Jesus is like studying the ocean and missing the water. But the Jews believed that their knowledge of the scriptures, even their memorization of the scriptures, their zeal for the law of the scriptures would actually lead to their reward. It was to their gain and their benefit. And following something even as good as Bible study through the prism of self ruined its effectiveness completely. Now, we are unapologetically a Jesus church. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to follow Jesus. You have a longing in your soul this morning. You have a need in the deepest recesses of who you are. And your answer is Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. But there is a great fear that I have for us as a church, myself included. My fear is that we will just keep getting in our own way. That we actually will want to know Jesus. That we actually want to follow him. But we won't be able to get over ourselves enough to experience what we could. Right? Just as the modern theologian Taylor Swift writes, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. And I understand some of you, that's the only thing you'll remember I said today. And I've already repented over that. Okay? But think about it. The very disease that kept the disciples for two and a half years from knowing Jesus as they should, the very disease that blinded the Jewish leaders in their study of the scriptures and caused them to miss the Jesus the scriptures are all about is the same prism through which I view my own life way too often. I'm inflicted with the same disease and so are you. And I know what the solution is. 
I know the answer is Jesus. We all have a long inner soul. We all carry deep needs. We all have confusion that runs deeper than we want to admit. And the answer for all of it is Jesus. But knowing the answer isn't the fullness of the solution. The question is this. How do we just get out of our own way already so that we can get more of him? And so I want to make two suggestions that I hope are helpful, and then we'll wrap up this morning. The first is simply this, to pursue Jesus. And if you think that's too generic and simplistic, wait, just wait. Because I want to cut to the core of our motivations this morning. And so to frame this, I want us to look again at what I believe is the hardest command in all the Bible. Philippians chapter two says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Man, wouldn't it be amazing to live life in a community of people that actually truly embodied that? Wouldn't it be something to, to live with a group of people that, that actually everyone was deferring and looking out for the interests of others? Well, sort of. It'd sort of be amazing. You don't want to know what we really want? We want everyone else to live that way so that we won't have to. But the problem is when we all want that, then nobody lives that way. But the reality is this. The reality is this is a crystal clear command, a clear call in the scriptures. And sure, we won't get it 100% right. But man, stop letting that be an excuse to settling for not getting 100% right. How about some striving here? We need to strive for obedience in this area. And so how do we do that? Should I say, I'm going to put all of my effort and all of my focus and all of my attention on thinking about myself less? That doesn't seem like it's going to work, right? The key is actually in the next verse. Philippians 2 continues by saying this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. He is the one that did nothing with selfish ambition or conceit. He is the one who in humility considered others more important than himself, even though he is inarguably more important than us. He is the one that looked out for the interests of others and not his own. The key is not to pursue a set of behaviors. The key is to have our pursuit start with the one whose character we're called to embody. This is why Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing because I can't flex my way to selflessness. I can only get it through Jesus. But here's the key. In our pursuit of Jesus, let's be sure we're pursuing Jesus and lay aside any selfish motivation that we bring into it. Let's worship Jesus. Not because when I worship Jesus, he gets bigger and my problems seem smaller and so my life is easier. No, let's worship Jesus because he's worthy of my worship. Let's study his word, not, not to make myself feel smarter or intellectually superior or to be able to win a debate. No, let's study his word to simply know him more. Let's spend time in solitude and prayer, not to be a more peaceful, relaxed person, but simply to draw close to Jesus. Let's practice the command of Sabbath, not to slow down and rest and have a healthier life, but in order to make margin for Jesus to speak to our souls. Let's give to his kingdom, not so that he can bless me in return, but so that I can ensure that my heart belongs to him first. Do you see the shift in motivation? I don't want us to be a church of disciples as they were in Mark 9, where we have all kinds of spiritual experiences, but we do not know the heart of our Savior. I don't want us to be a church where we know the Scriptures well, but we do not know the heart of the one the Scriptures points us to. So let's pursue Jesus for the sake of pursuing Jesus. And when we do, yes, 
blessings and mercy and grace and benefits will come our way. He's that good, but they come when pursuing him and not his blessings remain our highest aim. Secondly, while pursuing Jesus, pursue formation. Transformation remains the work of Jesus. He is the vine, we are the branches, but far too often we as followers of Jesus use that as an excuse to skip out on all of it. I can't change myself, there's nothing I can do, this is just who I am. And the reality is this, that by his life and by his example and in his word and in his scriptures, Jesus himself has given us disciplines, he's given us practices, he's given us a way of life in order to live these things out. And then in his church, he's given us a community in in order to live it out together. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give us just a sampling, right? Just a sample list of practices, some activities to help you try to get over you. And I'm going to warn you, you're going to hate them, right? Because they're designed to help you get over you. But try some, try them all, get the heart behind it, try your own, I don't care. But these are just, these are just to frame your mindset in a way that helps you start trying to, to practice some of these things that we're called to. And the first is this, have a negative experience and tell no one about it. You want to you start living selflessly, start thinking of yourself like Have something bad happen to you and share it with nobody. Try only speaking positive things about other people, about businesses that you've been to, about experiences that you had, because learning to swallow the negative will remind you that the world does not revolve around you. And learning to swallow the negative will allow other sinful, flawed human beings to have a bad moment without it being shared with the world, which is something that followers of Jesus should aspire to. Second practice, second way to flex yourself is muscles. Have an opinion and then keep it to yourself. Be, be in a group conversation this week and let someone say something that you disagreed with. Let them, let them mention that your quarterback, your favorite quarterback is terrible. Let them mention that your political candidate is a moron. Let them mention that, that your favorite show is drivel. Let them say it, let it sit and say nothing about it to the point where you're fine with it. Because the sign that you're actually growing in grace, the sign that you're growing in formation of Jesus is when you stop feeling the need to form an opinion on every subject and stop sharing the ones that you have. You can just let it sit. Third, this is the easiest one, so do it, all right? Every morning, pray Romans 12.2 for yourself. Romans 12.2 is simply this. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So before your feet hit the floor, before you get out of bed, definitely before you grab your phone or get on the internet or turn on TV, before you get flooded with all the things of this age, take a moment and just say, Lord Jesus, transform me. Transform me today by renewing my mind. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to you. Help me to see the things the way you see them and to stop funneling everything through the prism of myself. And then fourthly, live out the discipline of selflessness in the community of the local church that you're a part of. Did you know that this is baked in the design of church? This is why God gave us this, right? That, that we walk hand in hand with Jesus in the pursuit of being formed in his image. What better lab could you ever want, what better practice field, what better spiritual weight room could you ever want to live out selflessness, humility, and deference than to do that with fellow sinners in the local church that you're a part of? 
three Sundays from now, not in the far future, three Sundays from now, we're switching to a two-service schedule. We, we, we can make the room by adjusting some things, and we need to do this. We have all kinds of goals in mind, all kinds of goals that we've talked about as a staff and as elders that I'm not even going to share, right? There's too many lists this morning. We, have, we sure hope that through this process, the church will be more connected. We hope that our worship becomes more enthusiastic and passionate because we believe it's a real weakness of this place. I hope you didn't think we were a perfect church. But all of that, all of that is secondary to two things I noted this week. On Thursday, I had the honor, the distinct honor, of preaching the funeral for Jim Staley. Jim Staley was a great man, a terrific follower of Jesus who touched many lives. He was humble. He was quiet. He was selfless. He did more work around this building than anyone will ever know about except Greg, right? Because he was there. And last week, when we announced his tragic passing, almost no one in our 930 and 1045 services even had a clue who we were talking about. Today, at the end of our 1045 service, Kaylin Knowlton is being baptized. It's a young woman in her mid-20s who's a brand new believer. She gave her life to Jesus Christ eight days ago, praise God. She's hungry for the Lord. She has all kinds of questions. She is needing discipled and prayed for and invested in. And in our first service this morning, or in this service now, I could have made up any name I wanted to make up. And none of you would have known the difference. And you won't see her baptism today. And in those two rooms make up hundreds, if not thousands of years of experience of following Jesus, and you would never cross paths with her. Those realities absolutely must change. I am failing you as a pastor if I allow that to continue. And what created it was a culture where services were catered to personal preference. And I mean this with every syllable. Thank God that season is ending. And yes, it will mean that there will be times you come and you won't hear the songs you want. Whatever your preference is, I don't care, right? I literally don't. We can't possibly, Brandon can't possibly play songs that match what 400 people want. It might match your preference, it might not, but I need to state clearly, not only is we as a church not called to meet your preferences, not only is it possible, we're actually called, I believe, by the Lord to buck up against them. And that is why I want to say publicly that when we make this transition, I will not take any meetings about worship style. No conversations. And I've instructed our staff to do the same. If you want to meet about almost anything at all, we're here for you. If you, want to, if you we're here to serve you, we're here to help you follow Jesus. If you want to talk about the types of songs that are played, we have way more important things to do. And I only have so, many time, so much time on this earth before I die. And so listen to whatever you want on the way here. Listen to whatever you want on the way home and every other day of the week. And when you hear, praise God to whatever is being played because he's worthy of being praised. And for your soul and for your formation and for your good, make sure that you don't miss the point of it all. When you come to a worship service on Sunday, come for God first, come for others second, and leave yourself a distant, distant, distant third. I mean, man, think about what a gift of God it is to us that we get the chance to live out the discipline of selflessness every single time we gather the church. Funneling everything through the prism of self has destroyed families. It has literally brought down kingdoms. It has ruined marriages, ended friendships, led to endless amounts of conflict and strife and violence. It's the greatest enemy to what God wants to do in you and through you. It's the greatest enemy to what God wants to do in me and through me. 
So pursue Jesus, and as you do, pursue formation. As C.S. Lewis puts it, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. May Jesus do this work in us, church. So before we close today, we're going to give you a couple minutes to spin with God and wrestle with the very things that we've talked about. Wrestle with the prism of self. Be honest with him. Be repentant towards him. If you need guidance, there's going to be some stuff on the screens for you, but this is your time to just respond to how the Lord might be leading you this morning.